As usual, I've got my little New Testament. He's thrown an Old Testament one in there, but um, it was a challenge there, so I've not got the big book with me today. I must buy one of these things, really. <clears throat> but in Luke chapter 7, as Mike has set the scene for us, we've got the John the Baptist in a strange situation. Um, and what I want to do is just sort of pick three things out of the, uh, the passage. I want briefly to run over the life and message of John the Baptist to start with. What was the life and message of John the Baptist? I want to ask the question, what message did he expect the Messiah to bring? Because there seems to be some sort of question about who he thought Jesus was. There's no question about thinking of him as the Messiah. It was what was the message the Messiah should bring? And the third one is the big question, are you the one who was to come? Since my in-laws are here, I thought I'd better tell a story from Carlisle. Um, in Carlisle Castle, one of the Highland chieftains of the MacDonald clan was confined to a tiny prison cell. And in that tiny prison cell, there was a tiny window. And to this day, there are marks in the windowsill ledge of where he jumped up and clung to the windowsill ledge in the sandstone rock and looked out into the wide open spaces, looking towards the Galloway hills and valleys, the wilds where he was at home, but he was in prison at that time. And it's a fact in Carlisle Castle today. If you go there, you will see marks in the ledge where he clung on looking out to the place that he would never see again. But that was his life out there in the highlands of Scotland. And it's a mindset and a mood that'll help us understand the situation that John the Baptist was in. John the Baptist, a man of the wilds. He was in the prison. He was imprisoned for condemning or rebuking Herod. Herod had divorced his wife. He'd married his brother's wife, who was also his nephew. And John had stood up and spoke out against this and been imprisoned for it. But he had spent most of his adult life on the edge of the desert. He'd become known as a, as a public figure, and you'll know that he wore these sort of camel hair clothes and leather belts. And He became known as a bit of a character, and people travelled out to the edge of the desert just to hear him speak. And he spoke a really weird message that you would think people wouldn't want to hear. It was repent, turn away from your ways and be baptized. And then he took them into the Jordan, into the river and washed them symbolically clean of their sins. And they came up again, new people. This was the message of John the Baptist. And Jesus said of John in the passage that we've just read, no one was greater than John the Baptist. But I don't think John the Baptist was the type of guy that you'd invite to a party. He's, I think he might have been a bit of a misery guts from the way Jesus sort of finished off this same passage. Jesus t tells us, which I think it might be a nursery rhyme, uh, but uh, obviously the tradition doesn't tell us that, but it seems to be a rhyme of some sort. He says this thing about John the Baptist sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. And I sang or played a lively tune and you didn't dance. That's the gist of it. And I think Jesus is saying there, not that you shouldn't invite people in camel clothes to your parties, 
but that John the Baptist came showing one extreme. The message came through the extreme of, of that person. And the message came through the other extreme of the personality and the vibrancy and the truth of Jesus Christ. And still the people rejected both extremes. And he says, he talks about the generation that rejects that message. And it's still as poignant today, isn't it? Two thousand years later, we have a people hearing the message of Jesus from many different extremes and sources. And people still will not look. It's a bit old hat now, but there's a, a, on, on the Pink Floyd album, The Wall, there's a song called Comfortably Numb. I have become comfortably numb. And around us we look, and maybe we can point at ourselves, but around us we look and we see people comfortably numb, ignoring the fact that Jesus is a reality, comfortably numb, living from birth to death, just ignoring the whole thing. So that was the two extremes of the message of John and the message of Jesus. It was sort of a whistle-stop tour of John, which was intended to set the scene of John because we need to pick up the story now of this wild man in prison and ask these two questions which I mentioned earlier. What message did he expect the Messiah to bring? And what on earth did he mean when he asked Jesus, are you the one? If we look back to some of the things John the Baptist said about Jesus in his desert talks, um, we'll see that it seemed that Jesus was at a bit of a tangent from what John expected. Let me read uh, Luke 3, verse 17. No, let's, let's take a bit of a run at it. Let's just come from 15. Luke 3. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. But John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and he will baptize you with fire. And this is the strange bit. And his winnowing fork, let's call it a pitchfork, let's not get big words in it. His pitchfork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. But he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. He had this picture of Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit, but also the fire. I thought that was Pentecost it was talking about. That's not the fire of Pentecost. That's the lake of fire he's talking about. With his pitchfork in his hand. This is before the days of high tech. No combine harvesters here. This is the picture of, of somebody with, with the grain is gathered in and he's shaking it up with his pitchfork and the chaff, the light stuff, sort of breeze, blows away gently in the breeze. And the heavy stuff falls down, and that's the grain, and that's the good stuff. And then they set a light to the pile of chaff. And he's got this picture of Jesus with a pitchfork in his hand, coming to do the judgment on the evil in the world. And Jesus remarkably responds to this in Luke 4. By reading from the passage we heard earlier, he read from Isaiah 61. Where's Kate? Kate, will you just read me the first verse, first one and a half verses again? And this is actually the way it happened, is Jesus stood up in the temple 
undid the scroll and read this out. And he said, this is about me. You'll know the story uh, from Luke 4, but this is the very passage. Stop there. Stop there. Because, read that very last two, two lines again. And tell me, is there a comma or a full stop in your book? After, to proclaim, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Right. There's no full stop there, but in Luke, when Jesus does it, he stops in the middle of a sentence. And that's very strange for him to have this scroll, the whole thing's there in front of him, and he rolls it up in the middle of a sentence and stops short of saying this phrase about the vengeance of God. And I think he was making a point that this is the time of mercy. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Judgment and vengeance will come. It will happen. But this is the in-between times. This is our time to turn and follow. This is our time to receive forgiveness and mercy. This is our time to proclaim to the people that Jesus is available to give people the hope that they long for. And in a sense, I think Jesus' expectations of what Christ the Messiah would be wasn't quite what Christ the Messiah was. Because Christ was bringing mercy. He says, go back and tell him what I did. The blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised. These things happened. But the winnowing fork, the pitchfork, wasn't mentioned when Jesus read from Isaiah 61. And so, back to John the Baptist's prison cell, a few months later probably, John's thinking, I said I'd burn the evil. I said, sorry, I said Jesus would burn the evil out of this place. I said Jesus would bring judgment with unquenchable fire. I said his pitchfork is in his hand. And I'm here in jail. And the evil's still out there. Maybe he was looking out that window, looking out to the hills. The evil is still out there. What's going on? And he sends two of his heavies, two of his disciples around to Jesus. And he says, ask him this question. Are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? And this is a question that's been much discussed as John's big moment of failure and lapse. But for me, it doesn't fit with the character of the person. It doesn't fit with the way Jesus responded to him in such a loving way, such an assuring way, where he spoke to the crowd afterwards about what a great guy John was. To me, it doesn't fit. It's not a question of doubt. Doubt implies some sort of pulling back, sort of reassessing and pulling away. This is John reaching out, longing for a clearer sign. To me, this is part of John's ongoing relationship with his Heavenly Father, part of his spiritual journey, if you like. And we need to remind ourselves that it's okay. It's okay to question God in this way. In church, we're very good at saying everything's okay. How are you doing? Fine, I am okay. And we've become masters of cover-up, haven't we? 
There's all that stuff that we just don't let out. We don't bring it to be prayed for sometimes even because of the fear of what might happen to us if we pour our hearts out or the fear of other people seeing what's going on. But John the Baptist in prison, for him all was not well. And he was prepared to say it. And he sent a message to Jesus. Are you the one or is there someone else? And I'm going to take a risk here in the way I illustrate this. Because some people might think it's a bit insensitive. It's not meant this way. But I think this question, are you the one, may seem a bit more relevant. If I say in the aftermath of Oma two weeks ago and 28 people killed and two unborn babies. If I went into the streets of Oma and shouted at God, are you the one? Do you get the feeling behind this? When we need a visible, audible, touchable, anythingable sign of the real, real presence of God, suddenly everything seems a bit distant. And we look around and we wonder, where is God? And you need to know it's okay to ask the question, are you the one, Jesus? Jesus, are you the one? And there are people there whose lives will never be the same because of 10 past 3 on the 15th of August. And they'll be counseled by priests, by ministers and vicars over the next weeks, months, years, and none of them can answer the big one question. Why? None of them. But strangely, and it's a mystery of our faith, each one of these ministers, through prayer and care, will bring comfort to those people of Jesus. He will bring comfort to those who mourn. And Jesus will bind up the brokenhearted gladness for mourning and beauty in the ashes of their ruined broken lives and for those who reach out when reaching out doesn't make sense they find another mystery of the faith that he is there Matthew 28 verse 20 I am with you always and though there's no explanation of why, and though there's no question of lifting them out of the trauma that they're in, somehow they hear Jesus say to them, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And wrestle all you like, please, with the awkward questions. Ask angry questions. And as long as you direct them at God or to God, then you'll hear. This resounding answer coming back from your question, are you the one? Yes, I'm the one. I am the one. And maybe you've swept your problems under a carpet for long enough, whatever they are. And that was the risk of comparing it with Oma, that you take it away from yourself. I don't mean to do that. We all come here with baggage and problems that we just sweep under the carpet. And perhaps you've done it for long enough and God wants you to know it's okay to ask a question. Are you the one? Lord, I need you. It all seems a bit distant. Are you the one? Help me, Lord. 
And you can find a reply in Isaiah 61. God has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And maybe your broken heart says, yes, Lord, I need some of that. Bind up this brokenhearted, fragile, scared, vulnerable master of cover-up. Do it, Lord. And if you're reaching out to Jesus today from your own trauma, he gives you his own personal beatitude. It's lovely. Blessed are you, Mary, Joan, George, Brian. Blessed are you because you do not fall away because of me. You can find it there in Luke 7, 23. Jesus replied to John the Baptist in his prison cell. Blessed is the person who does not fall away on account of me. This isn't a dig at John. This is his cousin talking to him. Jesus was a cousin or a relation of John the Baptist. Blessed is the man. It's an encouragement who does not fall away on account of me. That's an authoritative speech of someone who is the one. Blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. If you're reaching out, when reaching out doesn't make sense, take courage this morning from Jesus' response. To your big question, are you the one? It's a resounding, I am the one. Blessed are you, because you do not fall away on account of me. Let's pray for a minute.